You know, people, uh, they ask me if, if I believe the truth about that man named Jonah. You know, the, the rumors are starting to spread that after we tossed him into the ocean, he appeared three days later and actually made it to Nineveh. I recall that storm so vividly like it was yesterday. I mean, the next day, my face just ached so, so much from, from the sea-laden air just being blasted against my cheeks. My hearing still isn't quite right because of, well, how loud the howling wind was. Most of us, we walked around all stiff the next morning because of how hard we began to row, and none of us had any energy left. In my 50 years of being a sailor, making that trip all the way to Tarshish multiple times, I never experienced a storm like that. And, you know, it's funny because it wasn't until halfway in that one of uh, the crewmates said, you know what, guys, I don't think this is normal. This isn't a natural storm. There has to be a reason, a cause. Someone up there has become a little bit upset. And interestingly enough, it wasn't until about, about halfway in that we began to say, you know, maybe there's some truth to this. And so we put down our oars and we came together and we began to say, all right, guys, who was it? Which one of you guys ticked off your God enough for him to want to kill us with this hurricane out of nowhere? And we began to cast lots, and, and we were all coming up empty. Of the corner of my eye, I remember seeing the captain march down to the bunks and coming back a few moments later with that passerby, that prophet, that man named Jonah. And Jonah began to tell us that everything we were experiencing, that we were all within an inch of our life because of his mistake, because of his wrongdoing, because of his choices, because of his God, Yahweh, as he called him. And he began to say that the only way to make restitution was for him to be our sacrifice, to be tossed overboard so that we may live. Now, I'll be honest with you, we weren't the most moral people to begin with. However, we weren't murderers, we weren't killers. We began to row even harder. We tossed even more cargo off the side of the ship so that we could continue to try to get to shore, but nothing seemed to work, and it wasn't until all hope seemed to be lost that the captain said, it's time to give this a shot. A couple of the guys grabbed Jonah by the arms, took him to the edge, and it was at that moment that I turned and I just leaned my head against the stiff wooden mast of our ship because I could not watch. And as quickly as the storm came, it left. As soon as that man hit the water, sure enough, the storm subsided. I didn't know what to make of it, except for that this God of his had to be true, that this God of his had to be full of grace, that a bunch of people who did not believe would be spared because of one man's actions. Again, I tell you, I don't know what happened to that man named Jonah, but I can tell you this. I began to experience the grace of that all-loving God for the first time ever. I want to welcome you to week two of our teaching series called 72 Hours, in which we're walking through the story of Jonah. It's a story that most of us may or may not be familiar with, and our minds typically go to what we're going to encounter today in chapter 2. If you've heard of the story of Jonah, you typically think of that 72 hours, that three days in which the prophet of God spent in the belly of the great fish or the whale or the Loch Ness monster or whatever it was that sea creature that came after him was. 
And so today, a couple housekeeping things. Number one, if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Jonah chapter two. If you have your app, you can follow along there. You can take notes. The book of Jonah is found in the Old Testament. If you go halfway through the book of Psalms and keep going to the right, you'll pass Ezekiel, you'll pass Daniel, Hosea, Obadiah, and then you'll get to Jonah. It's a small book. It's only four chapters, but it's jam-packed with a lot of spiritual truth. That's the first thing. Second thing, uh, big game tonight. Let's hope our boys uh, can bring home a championship, right? So we're excited about that. Uh, looking forward to the Big Ten championship this evening. And so as you're turning there, as, as we're preparing, I want to do one, two couple things. I want to recap just briefly last week and kind of encompass what we say that the book of Jonah is all about. So this, if you want to walk away with one thing about the story of Jonah, it's about God's sovereignty. Or we put it this way, that God's will will be done whether with us or in spite of us. And last week, we kind of uh, began to see this is one of those in spite of us moments, that Jonah, the prophet of God, was told to go to the city of Nineveh, and Jonah decided to not go that way, instead to go the opposite. He ran away, and God is still chasing, he's still pursuing Jonah. Now, this is a great message for you and I, because it tells us that God will not relent. He will not stop in his pursuit of us. That he has a plan, a will, a desire for us to take part in his kingdom. Now, the book of Jonah is interesting. It's four chapters, and it breaks down into two chunks, kind of cyclical. And we said it kind of follows this cadence over and over. That God's going to speak to Jonah. He's going to say, this is what I need you to do, Joe, all right? We've got this idea. I need you to kind of take place. And so, and then Jonah's going to do something interesting. He's going to kind of run away, do his own thing, and it's going to lead to an encounter with pagans, people that Jonah doesn't necessarily like, uh, people that Jonah is kind of trying to figure out. Do I even want to go to those people to begin with? And then after that, we're going to see those. Jonah has an intense conversation with God. He talks with God, and that's where we're going to pick up today. And then it's going to start all over again in chapters 3 and 4 again. But the story of Jonah is super interesting because you hear this story. Here's these people that need saving. Here's a loving God. Here's a man of God. This should be simple and easy, right? That the story should be fairly linear. It should be fairly obvious what's going to happen. And Jonah is the person that we learn from, not by saying, oh, that's what Jonah did, therefore I do that. Rather, on the opposite, it's watching what Jonah didn't do. Looking at the idolatry, the issues within his own heart that kept him at bay. You see, there's this chart we kind of showed you. There's two kind of main groups of characters in this story. We have Jonah, and then we have the Gentiles. And over and over, we begin to see the, the guy who we think should be the hero. The person that we think should be the one that, that we learn from is actually the one who kind of makes all the mistakes. And it's the people who have yet to experience the love of God, who then through Jonah's mishaps began to praise and repent God are the ones we began to learn from. And so today, as we pick up in chapter two this morning, I want to start by saying last week we talked about how sin has the ability to shipwreck our lives. That storms come, whether result of life or our sin in general. And here's the truth that we're going to see this morning, is that storms can either shipwreck your life or they can create a buoyancy of spirit within us. So as we dive into chapter 2 of the book of Jonah, let's see if Jonah sinks or swims this morning. Jonah chapter 2, we're going to read this prayer in its entirety, starting in verse 1. Follow along with me. It says this, it says, salvation comes from the Lord. And then it continues then in verse 2. And it says, he said, in my distress, I called out to the Lord and he answered me. From the deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. And you, he's talking to God, listen to my cry. 
And you hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. And I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, the seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me. And forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. So to those who cling to worthless idols, turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good, and I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. You see, last week we ended with this idea that sin is when we run and hide from God. It doesn't take a, a, a rocket scientist, doesn't take someone overly educated to say that. I think we all can say, yeah, I'm in that boat. I have run, I have hid, I have broken the will, the laws of God in my life many more times than I care to admit and many more times than I am even aware of. And in this moment, though, we said that while sin is us running and hiding from God, grace is God running and pursuing us despite our running and hiding. And so here in chapter 2, Jonah is beginning to wrestle. He's becoming aware of the depths of his sin. He's saying, you know, I was in the deep. I was, I was beneath it all. Struggles, the waves came over me. The seaweed was holding me down. I had no hope. I was trapped. I was lost. I did not have any idea. I was stuck in that pit forever. If you're like me, you can resonate with that. If you're like me, you can at times feel like that is sometimes, man, the only thing I can muster is to say, God, I've, I've, I've messed this up. I haven't, I haven't followed after you like I should. And it's interesting, though, that every single time Jonah talks about the depths, he's seen shouting and calling out to the Lord, I look to your holy temple. And he gives credence to God doing a saving work, despite his running and his hiding from the Lord. So here's the truth I want to start us all off this morning. That Jonah, a prophet, a man of God, set apart to preach the good news, get this, is that even the most professional Christian, the most mature Christian, even the person who has known Jesus for a very, very long time can be blinded to God's grace and his goodness. You know, it's kind of like the, the contractor and you show up to his house and it's still like a DIY project. Or, or, or the person who's an interior designer and you walk into their rooms and everything's like a few decades out of date, that sometimes even those who are the most quote-unquote professional or long-standing can be blinded to the will and grace of God. And so here's my thing as I begin to wrestle with this. If Jonah could have been blind to God's grace, then there's a good chance that you and I could be blind to God's grace at will. And so this morning is going to be tackling that kind of idea, that concept of grace. And so I want to ask these three questions and provide answers for us to really consider how the Holy Spirit may be prompting us to wrestle with the grace of God this morning. We're going to ask, what is grace? How do we receive it? And how do we know we have grace? So number one, first question this morning is, what is grace? 
You see, the word grace doesn't appear super frequently in the Old Testament, but it's oftentimes connected to whenever there's an idea of God's faithfulness or God's goodness being shared to his people. It's the Hebrew word chen. It means unmerited favor. It's the state of favor or being of benefit by extension. Think of it this way. Think about being called next of kin to someone in your family. And you get this massive inheritance, right? That you're inheriting all this money, this land, this, this property, these houses, whatever it is. And that you, all you did is you were just born, right? You didn't do anything. You didn't deserve it. But just by being a part of that family, you are welcomed in. That you have favor by extension. And so to us, we define grace this way. This is what grace is. It's favor to an undeserving person from an unobligated giver. I say that again. This is what grace is. Our interaction, our relationship with God is that we are undeserving of God's grace, his goodness, his love, his mercy, his compassion, and he is unobligated to give it to us. Now, the thing is, is that while this goes on and on and on, we begin to see that even when God is unobligated, he's excited. There's this expectancy, this desire that he has to give it away. See, if we look at the phrases in Jonah's prayer, he says, in my distress, in my mistake, from the deep, I have been banished. I find myself in the pit. I am in the, the, the depths. They surround me. And here's the hard truth about receiving God's grace. It's not until we wake up to the reality of the depths of our sin that we get to first experience the grace of God. See, the grace of God, the good news, can only exist next to bad news. So here's the bad news. That you and I alike, we're like Jonah. We've ran from God, we've hid from God, we have sinned, we are entrapped by the depths of our mistakes. That's not a super fun message, right? That's not something that a lot of us would say, hey, Eric, that was great motivation. Uh, you know, I, I really enjoy that. But then that's where the grace of God begins to slide into play. Saying that despite that, in spite of all of that depth, that separation, Jonah says, I look up to your holy temple. I called out to you and you answered me. That's the good news, is that God sent a provision of grace to Jonah out of his act of repentance. He sent a fish to swallow death whole for three days, only to be given life yet again. And for us, our provision of grace isn't a fish. Our provision of grace is a man, a man by the name of Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, both fully man, fully God, whose life, death, and resurrection offers us the eternal salvation in the family of God. But it's not until we're able to stop, to pause, Consider in all humility and bow before God and say, God, I am in the deep. I am in the thick of it. I've got myself tangled up into a mess that I cannot get out of it. And God, the entire time, is standing there at the door waiting for us to just crack it up just a little bit, just a little bit for him to come in. But he does not come in unless we first open the door. You know, um, my family and I, we just kind of moved to, out into the country a little bit, and um, <laughs> this is super weird for a guy from San Diego. Uh, we have a pet rooster. This is a picture of, his name's Cluck Norris. 
Um, you can follow him on Instagram at Cluck Norris underscore BBR. Um, and, and so Cluck here is like the, the most peculiar thing ever. So I, he does all the rooster things. Like he crows in the morning at like 4 a.m. Really made my wife excited about that. Uh, except he crows all day long. Did you guys know, like roosters will crow like all day long. He goes up in trees, and all but he does this really weird thing. Okay, so, so, so every single morning when, when uh, I'm up and drinking my coffee, getting the day started, cluck, he hangs out at our sliding glass door, and I kid you not, he pecks at the door. He's up there, he's like strutting, and he's clucking, and he's pecking, and then, I kid you not, if you slide the slider open just a little bit, he sticks his head through. You know, like the shining, like, hey, here's clock, right? Type of thing. Like, he's like, I'm ready to come in type of deal. I kid you not. Yesterday, I was in the garage. I had, it was a nice day. The garage was open. I was working on some things, clean out, had my headphones in. Then all of a sudden, I hear him cock-a-doodle-doing in my garage. He's up on the top shelf, and I go to get him out, and he, like, hides. He, like, ducks down behind these white PVC pipes. I was like, oh, clock, you a smart rooster, bro, Right? And so it's the same thing. He's standing there waiting. And Cluck is just saying, just give me a little bit of daylight. Crack the door and I'm coming in. And that's what God's grace is to us. Just open the door slightly. Give me a little bit of room and I am coming in full force. Not to terrorize your life, but to transform your life. So even though God is an unobligated giver of grace, he has this excited expectancy to extend it to us if we crack open the door of our hearts. As Jonah was becoming aware of his fallenness and his depravity, God was waiting expectantly to extend love, grace, forgiveness, and mercy yet again. What is grace? It's favor to an undeserving person from an unobligated giver. Second question is this this morning is, well, how do we receive grace? It's one thing to know what grace is. It's another thing to talk about it. How do we receive grace? You see, notice Jonah in his prayer. Whenever he said, I call out of my dis distress, he would then say, but God answered me. I was in the deep, yet you saw me. I was in the pit, but I looked up to your holy temple. See, Jonah did not say, I'm in my distress and, you know, I, uh, you know, I kind of wrestled with my mistakes, and God kind of told me, well, get your life together first, Jonah, and then I, will, then I will welcome you back in. Jonah didn't say, I made a few mistakes, and God said, okay, well, well I'm going to call a timeout on this relationship until you kind of outdo some of the bad things you've done with some good things. No, no, no. He just simply says, I have ran. I have hid. I have made a mess. But God, there you are. In my mess, in the depths, in the pit, you see me. And even there, even when I am fully aware of how separated I have made myself from you, when I call out to you, you answer. When I shout your name, you hear my voice. When I'm in the depths and I look up to your holy temple, you have not turned your face from me. Jonah continues to feel welcome in the house of God because of God, not Jonah. God receives you. He receives you and I because of what's in his heart, not what's in our hearts. Jonah says, I know what I am. Here's what I've done. And yet, in spite of this, you invited me in. 
I love the dichotomy in Jonah's prayer when we see the depths in the pit versus the temple. So the depths of our sin and the heights of God's mercy is kind of on display in this moment. You see, Jonah refers to God's holy temple two times over, and it's not just the temple, but it's the spot in the temple. The ancient Israelite temple was this place, or sometimes referred to as the tabernacle, that had three quarters. And in the innermost quarter, what was called the, the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies was what was called the Ark of the Covenant. Any Indiana Jones fans, Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? That thing, but not that, but you know what I'm saying. Okay, anyways. And so in the Ark of the Covenant was God's law, the Ten Commandments. But the lid, the lid of the, uh, of the, the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant was called the Mercy Seat. And in Exodus 25, uh, God is talking with Moses and he's saying, you need to make atonement. You need to make things right with me. And he says, I will meet you there. Not in the temple, not in the Holy of Holies, but on the mercy seat. And there, that is the spot where you will make an atoning sacrifice. You will sprinkle some blood on that seat of mercy. And what God is essentially saying is, I will meet you where my mercy and my law intersect. God is saying, I will always sit of my law, my character, my attributes of how we're called to to construct and develop our lives around the goodness, the greatness, the holiness of God. That is what God's law is. It's not a list of rules of how you get into heaven. It's a list of ways to show us how we cannot get to heaven in our own strength, in our own merits, okay? And so here God says, and Jonah saying, I look up to you, God, and I see your holy seat, and there you are seated, and you are invited me in. The golden slab, the caparet, Oftentimes where we get the term Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, the mercy seat where the blood is sprinkled, the Ten Commandments is under, where we receive the reminder of God's goodness and we receive the payment of a substitute on our behalf. Now our blood sacrifice is not our own, thankfully. The blood sacrifice for us is not of animal blood today. It is of Jesus Christ. You see, God's way, ever since the beginning, has always been a way of grace. I'll be honest, one of the things that, 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 that irks me as a pastor is when we begin to think of God's law as separated from God's love. God's law is not a way of, here's how you can earn your way into heaven. Rather, it was to show you, guys, you can't do it. You need someone else to take your place. And even in the Old Testament sacrificial system, there was always a means of grace. Except it was just a yearly grace. It was a yearly day of atonement in which the great high priest would head into the Holy of Holies, sprinkle blood of a pure, spotless lamb onto the mercy seat to make Kippur for everyone. Because God is a God of grace. He always has been and he always will be. But it's not until he says, meet me at my law. And there you will find my mercy. See the depths of your sin and look up to the greatness of my goodness and mercy. And there you will be able to shout and to proclaim salvation belongs to the Lord. See, we need to know this, is that the fish for Jonah is not a reprimand. The fish in the story of Jonah is a gracious provision following his repentant heart. Because death must always precede life in the law of God. But it's interesting because there's kind of two false dichotomies and narratives when it comes to to the depths of our sin and the heights of God's mercy. In some ways, some of us have too low a view of our sin. 
We think sin is too harsh. We think this idea is overly dogmatic. We think, oh, it was just a little white lie. It was just a little gossip. It wasn't really that big of a deal. And so we began to live, you know, God, I'm actually a decent person. I'm kind of a good person compared to them, compared to those people. And we begin to not really, we see the heights. Well, God, I know how good you are. I know how great and how magnificent and awesome and, 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 and glorious that you are, God. But I'm also really not that terrible of a person, especially next to Steve. We have too low a view of our sin sometimes, but the opposite is true. Sometimes we have too low a view of God's mercy. And we begin to tell ourselves lies, convince ourselves. Well, I get why God would forgive you. You you haven't done what I have. You haven't lived the life that I have. Well, God, surely you forgave me the first 10 times, but we're on like number 72 of this issue. I mean, 24 hours ago, I was asking and begging, full of remorse and sorrow. And and God, I mean, at some point, you're you're just going to run out of grace for me, right? And we begin to convince ourselves that God's mercy, God's grace is limited. That there's only a finite amount, that it's like a battery. And as soon as we've used all the charges, just completely gone. And both of those are false. We can never have too high or too low a view of our sin. At the same time, too, we can never have too low a view of God's mercy. See, both are lies from Satan in this spiritual warfare trying to get you locked in, to keep you in the depths of that sin separated from God. And so this is what Jonah is referencing when he says, I see the depths of my sin, I am in the pit, and I look up to your temple. This is what Jonah is trying to get everyone to understand that no one is so good that they don't need grace. And no human is so bad that they can't receive it if they repent. Let me say that again. No one is so good that they don't need the grace of God in their life. At the same time, too, no one is so bad that they can't receive it if they have a repentant heart. And if you're like me, you need to hear perhaps one of those this morning. God's mercy has not ran out on you. His grace is always sufficient. Or, there is sin in your life. You do need to repent. God sees it. It is real. It is causing storms. But his grace and his goodness is there. We receive God's grace when we see both the depths of our sin and the heights of God's mercy, and knowing that the payment on that mercy seat was the blood of Jesus Christ. How do we receive grace? It's through a faith derived of a repentant heart and a merciful God. We can't have just repentant hearts, and we can't just have a merciful God. We must have both in order to receive God's grace. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, not a work of yourself, so that no one can boast. See, the solution to the storms of life isn't necessarily what you do in trouble. It's what do we do when that trouble is gone? Have we used God to just get us out of this mess, or do we really value the grace in a life-transforming way? And so that leads us to our final question this morning. Well, how do we know we have it? We know what grace is. 
We kind of understand how to get it. But how do we know? What's the proof? What's the fruit to know that we actually have grace in our life? You see, Jonah, he's going through this time of remorse. He's going through this time of repentance. And he ends with this gem in verses 8 and 9 when he says, And so to those who pay regard to those worthless idols, they have forsaken your steadfast love, God. What he's basically saying, to those people who've decided to rest in their own merits or to listen to false things in life, he says, but I, with thanksgiving, I sacrifice to you. What I think of this is, is this kind of the difference between intimacy and transaction. Dare I say the difference between a relationship with God and a religion, even though I don't really like that too much. It's the difference between intimacy and transaction. Because what the pagans were doing, the Gentiles, is they would have a transactional relationship with God. Okay, I have this God that I want him to bless my life. Okay, well, I will do X, Y, Z. Ergo, God, you are obligated to give it to me. Or I have made a mess. Here is my sacrifice. Therefore, God, clean up my mess. This is this transactional relationship with God. They only went and turned to God when they needed something or wanted something. God's not after a transactional relationship with you and I. He's after intimacy. There's a difference there. In the, uh, the mid-2000s, there was this uh, pretty whack TV show, but it was kind of interesting. I'm, I'm kind of sadistic when it comes to like, reality TV shows. I like to see people not suffer, but like, my wife watches The Bachelor, and I vote on like, who's the worst. Like, that's my thing. Anyway, okay. Anyway, there was this show that's like, even worse. Okay? Um, it was called For Love or Money. Anybody ever heard of this show? Okay, it aired for like three or four seasons. And essentially it was this. It was The Bachelor, but at the end, the person who was chosen got to decide, do you want to enter into a relationship with this person or do you want a million dollars? That was the idea of the show. And for four seasons... They would watch these people, they fall in love, and they go on these dates, and I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. And then at the end, almost without fault, the person who made it to the end would say, no, nah, I'm taking the million bucks. I was just in this for a transaction. I was in this relationship to get something out of it. I really don't care about you when it comes down to it. And that's what Jonah is saying. He's saying, God, you are a God who desires relationship, intimacy. You're more than just a transaction with me. The prophet Hosea says in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, he says, For I desire mercy. This is God talking to the people of Israel and ergo us today. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. An acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. What God is saying, I am more interested in your heart than your hands. Because I know if I get your heart, if I transform your heart, if you open that door and let me in and my grace transform you, I get everything else with it. God is in the desire to have us have an intimate relationship with him, not a transactional one. So how do we know we have grace? Ask yourself this. Do I have a desire to be used by God, not a desire to use God? How do we know we have grace? Because we have a desire to be used by God, not a desire to use God. This is a stark reality for some of us. It ebbs and flows at times, doesn't it? We're not always perfect. Even when we step into the new life of Christ, we still mess up. We still sin. But we are no longer sinners. We are saints who still happen to sin. But if you ever want to know, is the grace of God transforming your life? Just ask yourself, am I in this relationship to get something from God or God himself?
Is God the precious gem and jewel that I desire above all else? Perhaps the other way to wrestle with this is to ask ourselves, what shape are the idols of my life in? An idol isn't necessarily like a little figurine that we pray to. Oh, that's how it functioned in the ancient history. For us today, it's literally anything that gets in the way of our relationship with Jesus. Sometimes idols can be our schedule, our priorities, a relationship. Sometimes our idols can be our bank account, our job, our career. Sometimes our idols can even be our family, that we prioritize our family which is a great thing which we're called to do over our relationship with God. Is it our sleep? I mean, we just lost an hour of sleep. How many of us are like, oh my goodness, oh, I barely made it this morning. What state are the idols of our heart in this morning? An idol is anything that blocks God's grace and our ability to submit to him. To have a desire to be used by God or a desire to use God. That's how we know that we have grace. Up out in. Chapter 2 of Jonah teaches us that there is no refuge from God, only refuge in God. That someone is going to have to weather your storm. The storm of your sin will be weathered by you for all of eternity or the blood of Christ. Jesus was thrown into the sea of God's wrath so that the sin of the world would subside in his life. Outwardly, it teaches us about the world around us that grace requires recognition of both the heights and the depths, that we are not competent until we realize our weakness and our inadequacies in the face of an all-loving God. And so inwardly, until we realize we run from God, we cannot fight him. Have you experienced the grace of God in your life today? As we move to our time of response this morning, I want to invite you all to partake with me how we remember the grace of Jesus, how God made that grace real, how God made that grace eternal. I I was overwhelmed by this in the preparation for this message. This is a little off script, which I do quite a bit actually, but uh, even more so than planned is, my, my prayer life at times is somewhat pharisaical. And what I mean by that is, well, God, thank you for what I, you've given me the ability to do. And that sounds weird because I think some of us were on one side where we need to know that God's grace is sufficient for you. Some of you are here this morning. Some of you may be watching online and you need to know, you need to be reminded that God's grace has got you. It does not run out. It does never, it never goes dry. But other of us on the other side, we, we, slowly, right? We slowly creep and begin to think, I've kind of got this under control. Like, God, you're kind of lucky to have me on your team. Which is just so, so bad theologically, just so wrong, it's so, so inadequate. And even in those moments, the grace of God reminds me over and over and over, you're nothing without me. And it's not like a domineering, you're nothing without me. It's a realization, you're nothing without me. Without me, without my son, without my spirit living in you, everything that you do has no value. But with me in your life, everything has the potential to reveal my kingdom for anyone who would submit themselves to me. So that's my question to all of us this morning. 
How much do we just revel and reflect on the supreme, sovereign, powerful, unending grace of Christ that he gave to us through his life, his death, and his resurrection. We are undeserving and God is unobligated. And yet here we are. On Jesus' last night with his disciples, he held up the bread. He broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. In that same moment, Jesus held up the cup, he held up the wine, and he said, this is my blood shed for you. Take and drink. And he looked at his disciples and he said, now do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good. You are great. You are love. You are full of grace. For those of us who are aware of the depths of our sin, may we look to your temple, to your mercy seat, and know you are there waiting for us. To those of us who perhaps we need to feel this conviction of your spirit, to rid ourselves, to to put off, to slay, to kill every sin that so easily entangles us, as Hebrew tells us. May we have the passion and desire. And on both of those sides, God, may we be reminded that it's only because of your grace that we are welcomed into your family. God, I thank you for your heart. May your heart now transform ours. It's your name that we pray.